Today on Security Science, we analyze the attacker-defender divide. Thank you for joining us as we discuss the sixth and newest report in our ongoing dive into the prioritization to prediction research series that we at Kenna Security have partnered with the Scientia Institute to put out there. We're doing prioritization and prediction volume six, the attacker-defender divide. With me today, I have the president-elect of risk-based vulnerability management, Kenna Security <laughs> co-founder and CTO, Ed Bellis. How's it going, Ed? It's going great, Dan. Thanks again for having me. Uh, I have a feeling that title is going to be a little Easter egg if people are listening to this episode in like five years. Um, the, the context may be lost. Anyway, um, and I'm also pleased to welcome our next guest. He's the quantifier of cyber loss, analyzer of exploits, partner and co-founder of Scientia Institute, Dr. Wade Baker. Dr. Baker, how's it going? It is going well, sir. Thanks for letting me uh, join in on this shindig. Awesome. And thanks for helping us with these reports. So a uh, quick caveat, as always, you can find um, any of the materials that we reference here on the podcast episode page at kennaresearch.com slash podcast. This one will be a little bit different because this report's actually launching a week from today. Um, and we will be reporting the or uh, promoting the hell out of it, I'm sure. So this will be across Kenneth Security's homepage. I'm sure if you've ever interacted with us, we will email you. You'll probably see it on social media media, anything we could think of to get this out in the world, it'll probably be there. So you could feel free to yell at me via Twitter if you'd like to. Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'll do a quick recap on the previous reports. We've done five up till this one. So um, just a quick reminder to kind of, I guess, set context and orient everyone. Um, there's a ton of vulnerabilities. We're roughly at just shy of, I think, 145,000 in NVD that have been tracked thus far. Um, remediation takes a ton of time. So it takes, uh, what, 45% of loans can be handled within the first month, two-thirds within three months, and just under 20% are open after a year. Orgs can't fix them all. Um, on average, 10% can be closed in any given month, which the, the Bellis rate of remediation, I think we titled that one. Uh, <laughs> um, but not all vulns need to be fixed right away. So 5% of vulnerabilities exist in corporate environments and have exploit code available to them. So those are the ones we're typically telling you to go attack first. Um, orgs can fix all their high-risk vulns. So um, 51%, which we've actually seen this number change over the couple years that we've been tracking this stuff, but 51% of organizations are actually reducing their high-risk vulnerability debt, 16% are maintaining, and only 33% are falling behind. And when we first looked at that, those numbers were almost exactly flipped, so that's awesome. And then from the last report, the volume of assets per organization and the density of vulnerabilities per asset just varies extremely widely. <laughs> like. Very, very, very widely. So there's no kind of rule of thumb for this one. But ultimately, we can say that vendor-led VM programs, patch cadences, and patch programs seems like a key to success to addressing volume of vulnerabilities quickly. So, whew, that's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, we're launching this report on the 18th, so a week from when we're actually recording this episode – and I want to do a quick shout out. So we take a first of its kind look at CVEs and particularly with this report, we're looking at observed evidence of exploitation. 
And anyone who's tried to look at threat intel or the, you know, been involved in cybersecurity data for a while, analysis will know that that's a really hard data set to get. Um, and it's a really hard data set to have cleanly. And we couldn't track and or analyze this without partnership of Fortinet and their exploit data. So Fortinet is one of the biggest cybersecurity companies on the planet. They do hardware, software, and they have uh, probably the world's largest network of sensors out there. So UTM devices, uh, next-gen firewalls, enterprise firewalls, all that good stuff. So I just wanted to give a massive shout-out to Fortinet because otherwise this data would not exist. Here, here. So, yeah, here, here. So, uh, all right, now that I got all of that out of the way, for this report, we looked at the gamut of 473 CVEs from the overall list of roughly 18,000 that were published in 2019. And those 473 were important because like I just kind of mentioned earlier, they have observed evidence of exploitation. So we can tell something happened where someone tried to exploit them in the wild. Wade, why is that important? Why did we look at that this time? Um, well, if you look at what we've been doing in the prioritization to prediction series, um, you know, this is a logical next step. Um, and, and I want to emphasize that for a second. These are not like planned out. What did we start this two years ago, two and a half years ago? It is not as though we had a roadmap figured out of what volume six would look like way back then. We don't know from time to time. And, and we are learning and asking questions and seeking answers to questions, uh, obviously a little bit ahead of the people that read these reports once they're published, but not far in advance. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing this live, so to speak. So, um, this seemed like a, a logical next step. And if you think about some of the things that, that Dan just highlighted, um, one that sticks out is the difference between an organization falling behind in the vulnerabilities in their environment and gaining ground on them and reducing that security debt is the ability to focus on the vulnerabilities with known exploits, right? Using that as a prioritization mechanism, uh, you can actually go from no hope of keeping up to where you're actually doing it. Um, so exploitation is an important thing to know about. Uh, and if you couple that with what we've been doing outside the report, so um, if you're following the exploit prediction scoring system, uh, you'll know that uh, this is another thing that Kenna and um, Scientia and other organizations have collaborated on to figure out, well, what, what are the characteristics of a vulnerability that make it more likely that it will be exploited in the wild? You know, so you kind of put these two things together, and that's where we arrive at, at volume six. We really, really, really want to know as much as we can know about these vulnerabilities that are exploited in the wild because they're a fantastic uh, mechanism for prioritizing vulnerability management. Awesome. Ed, you look like you wanted to say something. Oh, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's absolutely right what Wade was saying. And it's funny when we talked about the roadmap because, and, and we even talk about it at the end of volume six here, is we're going to introduce more questions with every volume of this report. So we answer a bunch of things, and I feel like we introduce probably twice as many questions as, as the ones <laughs> that we answer. They're all new questions, which is great, but which uh, guides further research. And I feel like that's kind of how this uh, roadmap has, has evolved over time for sure farther and farther down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and I, th I think, Ed, you've mentioned like, hey, yeah, we wanted to look farther into that when we were doing like volume three and then volume four. Hey, look, we're looking into that next. So now that's a very, very good point. Um, 
But uh, yeah, let's start with a little bit of context, right? So I think there's a pretty big final, um, I don't want to say conclusion to this one, right? Because there, there's a cool finding. We, I mean, there's still some more investigation, just uh, I will tease that now. But the beginning of this report is really setting kind of this context because um, – you know, new data set. This is kind of a new look, and we're trying to um, work through and figure out how do we measure some of this stuff. I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah. Um, so you start off with enumerating exploited vulnerabilities and doing a breakdown of the 473 with which we we've seen evidence that it's been exploited in the wild. Yeah. I don't think there's any uh, when you look at this gamut. I don't think there's there's any surprise that you know majority is Microsoft and Adobe, right? That's <laughs> If you followed any of the reports, they tend to have the highest volume, right? Yep. Um, yep. Um, and then they have a really large count. But uh, what I thought was interesting that when you look at prevalence, it's actually really low of exploited vulnerabilities, right? You would think it's kind of high, but um, when we look at this distribution, I think seventy-five percent of CVEs are detected in less than one in eleven thousand organizations. Now, is that uh, just to clarify on that? When we talk about prevalence, we're talking about prevalence of exploitation, not In prevalence wild, of yeah. the <laughs> vulnerability existing. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and this is one of those things, um, Dan, as you were uh, mentioning earlier. You know, having the visibility to see something like this is really the domain of Fortinet's and other large um, network providers that have that global. F- footprint of sensors, you know, that you can see lots and lots of organizations yep. uh, and detect the spread of exploitation across that that population. And it's and it really is like, I mean, we've all been living in the pandemic. Uh, a lot of the same principles apply. Right. So something goes live. It's first seen in the wild and then it starts spreading. And sometimes it spreads really fast. Sometimes it spreads slow. Sometimes it spreads within a localized area. Sometimes it spreads globally. It just, you never know. And and I, I was actually surprised that a lot of these uh, vulnerabilities that are exploited in the wild, they're not exploited everywhere. You know, that exploitation is fairly limited. And I find that hopeful in the same way that that 5%, you know, knowing that 5% of vulnerabilities are exploited and also seen in organizations because it means we have a smaller problem to actually deal with. When we talk about exploitation, knowing that there's a relatively few that see massive um, widespread prevalence is also like that because it means we have not many of them that are going to hit that uber spread tier. Yeah, I mean, to get back to the... Uh, EPSS and all of the exploit predictions and things like that. It's it's a big difference between you know predicting whether or not there will be an exploitation somewhere or whether you would be exploited, which is uh, yep. we can see a big difference here. Yeah. Ooh, and Wade, you talking about that kind of epidemiology? Shout out to our epidemiology for cybersecurity episode. I just got an idea. I want to get you on with Sam uh, Scarpino, uh, uh, our resident epidemiologist. That should oh, be man. fun. Dude's awesome. You guys would have a lot of fun jamming on the podcast. Anyway, um, (laughs) future uh, episodes aside, um, I think the max prevalence you saw was one in three, which was what less than 1% of the CVEs found right out of the 473. And just under 6% were even detected by one in 100 organizations. So pretty wide distribution, and that's pretty rare, ultimately. It is, and I I think it's something to... 
for people to remember, you know, we tend to have this thing of, oh, there's a vulnerability out. We got to fix everything right now. Or, oh, no, vulnerability is being exploited in the wild. That means I'm going to get hit tomorrow. And I mean, maybe that's true. But for most organizations, it's not true, right? And, and we, we, we need to understand that these, there's, there's a lot of gray area between an exploit that's in the wild and an exploit that's knocking on your door. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's how, why risk is so hard to calculate, right? Because it's, I mean, the, the risk reward, right? The, the timelines are long. The chance of actually something happening are actually pretty rare overall, but the ramifications, which is actually a plug for your Iris report, right? The Iris extreme, right? Ramifications can be pretty severe into the, to the tune of billions, right? Absolutely. Our I mean, friend uh, Michael Reitman might say there's a power law somewhere. In distribution, there. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just plugging every concept we've gone through in all the podcast episodes. Um, I, I think that's actually a pretty good segue, right? Because um, you're talking about now the likelihood and kind of the attack chain or the sequence of events that starts to happen, and that's where we jump to next, right? So the vulnerability life cycle um, – Ed, I don't know if you have it up. Do you want to read through some of those stages real quick just to show like, you know, what were the, you know, the various things that uh, they're trying to track from a timeline perspective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking through uh, some of the findings. It, it goes from, you know, CVE reserved, which we can kind of think of as usually the first thing that happens, but not always. Um to uh, I think what was it? CVE there's a patch published uh uh, part of the life cycle was detected by a scanner. Uh, part of it was actually being exploited in the wild, being patched uh, by or remediated by uh, by the companies after they've detected it by the scanner. Uh, what were some of the... Um, exploit code dropping. That's uh, right. Exploit yeah. code versus exploitation in the wild, which were different and, and pushed on, on, in either direction. Um, I think that was it. Am I missing one, Wade? Uh, those are the ones we focused on on most. Yeah, you, you know, we we tried to get information on like when it was first discovered and when it was disclosed, but that it doesn't tend to exist in a structured data format that's easily extracted. So we kind of had to to uh, push that to the side for now. Yeah. Maybe later. It's also very <laughs> vendor to vendor specific, right? Uh, as to how much they publish, or you know, in terms of when they became aware of a vulnerability because somebody discovered a, a researcher discovered something, and then we're, we're told about it versus you know Microsoft versus Google versus Adobe versus Apple, they'll all be very different. And there's there's a little bit of nuance with some of this stuff as well, right? Like so, CVE reserved can be seen as like one of the the day zero events where you look at stuff. But you know, we we were discussing this uh, earlier, like this week, I believe. But you know, sometimes companies or some of the CNAs and stuff they reserve blocks of CVEs like well in advance, nothing planned for it. They just know we're Microsoft, we're going to find stuff, right? So let's have these queued up so we can just populate them, right? Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of nuance to that stuff, but it's interesting because you guys start to lay out um, 
I don't want to call it the typical order of operations for kind of uh, attacks because it the, yeah, it's not yeah. really typical, but you know it is well, it, fuzzy. Yeah, I guess that's <laughs> as the typical point. as you can get. Yeah, so uh, there's a ton of different sequences of these milestones that they looked at. Um, so the highest one was just what 15.9% of the I guess incidents that you guys tracked. The, the start with 73. Yeah, yeah, the 473. So almost all of them start with the CVE reserved, right? Because like we said, those are typically reserved in advance, all that good stuff. But then the order changes. So 16% of the time, it goes from a reservation for CVE to a patch being available, which is important later on. Um, seen in the wild by vulnerability scanners, right? So organizations are finding this vuln within their environment, not exploited, nothing like that, but they're finding it from a scanning perspective. The CVE is actually published, right? And then there's exploitation in the wild. And that is... Out of all of the different um, sequences that could happen, that is the most, and it's only 16% of the time. So it falls off very quickly from there. So we're looking at figure four in the report, and I just thought it was kind of interesting to look at how varied all of these steps were, and sometimes steps are omitted. Sometimes things jump around <laughs> in ways that you wouldn't expect, but it just shows um, that there's no, there really is no order of operations for an attack cycle. Yeah, I mean, you, you talked a bit about the milestones and I think we covered a total of six and you mentioned the most common one only has five milestones, right? It's missing, I think, what the, the exploit code available as as part of the life cycle at all. Yeah, and, and I, I was fascinated looking at all of these because, um, again, this just goes to the better we know this, the better that we as defenders can can manage what we're doing to try to line up with what's happening, right? Because a lot of these things happen and um, vendors don't have control over it. A lot of these defenders don't have control over it, but they all play and they're all doing their things and they have different goals and objectives. Uh, and the attackers also play into this, right? They're, they're doing things. So um, it's just interesting to see it's all over the place. You know, like yeah, the last yeah. one on that figure four you mentioned goes from CVE reserve, jump straight to exploitation in the wild, right? Yep. That's that's the 10th most common pattern. And at 2.3% yeah, for right, 2019. At, at, at low, low, low volume, but still, you know, that's, uh, so there, you, you can't just assume that, oh, that CVE was, was reserved. Uh, you know, I'll wait for the patch to even worry about it because, uh, you know, there's, yeah. So you point out earlier, right, or you point out later in this uh, about some of these milestones overlapping, and we'll see this later in some of those other figures. Like the difference between some of these milestones is is often same day, right? So yeah, it may have come in this order, this order, in this order, and, but the difference in some cases could be hours. Yeah, and I think that there's like a a lot of people have kind of a set order they would think of the life cycle in their head. I know like I think it was volume one, right? We laid out this kind of life cycle ourselves and we set these things kind of in an order and now we're finding, yeah, sometimes they happen in that order, sometimes not so much. And as we've actually found out in several of these, I mean, the distribution, we, we talked about that earlier as well, is wide. It's very, very broad. And um, one of my big takeaways is actually figure five, right? So like we're finding all these different sequences and there's, I, I think someone else did the permutation. There's like 10,000 different orders that could potentially happen. But when you look at the distribution, exploit in the wild has the widest from a timeline perspective, right? So it can happen 
anywhere within <laughs> within this sequence. Um, and it just shows you how complex and probably why a lot of people haven't tried to tackle this type of analysis before. It would just be my guess. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a messy domain for sure. But, you know, at the same time, one of the things that struck me after we went through all of this is there's a lot of disorder. But if you zoom out and you don't worry about the finite differences between milestones, because like you said, Ed, a lot of them are on the same day. But if you just generally look at it, a CVE is reserved. Time passes coordination is occurring and within a relatively short amount of time you get the the cves published you get a patch vuln scanner um signatures are launched people start remediating exploit code is dropped and and then you know exploitation in the wild typically comes after that not always like we've said but you have this flurry of coordinated activities and that's that's one of the takeaways as i as i look at these at these things it really impresses upon me that a lot of those events are timed that way because you have the people that are finding and disclosing and the vendors and and everybody in between trying as best they can to make sure by the time that CVE becomes public knowledge that stuff's ready to go. Yep. And there's a reason for that or there should be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Another tease. But I'm sure I mean knowing the cybersecurity community, right? People will find specific examples that kind of buck the trend and all that good stuff, but yeah, to your point when you look at things at, you know, kind of the 10,000 foot level, you can start to really identify some of these patterns. Um I think, you know, we'll skip over some of this stuff. If you really want to go into some of this process details, you guys should all download and check out the report. There's a ton of good uh, uh, analysis on the timelines, where things happen and when. Um, and then the big part is you start to break down these timelines by different, I, I guess, day zero events, right? So um, yeah, uh, the first one was uh, CVE reserve date because that seems to be the only one that has a very strong correlation of Things typically start here, right? Um, and so when we look at that, I think figure nine is kind of the um, – well, here, let me step back. CVE reservation tends to be the day zero, for lack of a better word, for relative tracking purposes. Most but not all events occur after CVE is reserved. So just to get that out there. But we jump into exploit code being available or released um, relative to CVE publish date. So um, I don't know, wait, do you want to take a stab at that one real quick? Yeah. So if you can uh, imagine this section, you've got a series of charts and and uh, you have the, a timeline, right? And when we have, like Dan said, you've got CVE published, we know that happened when, and when does everything, when does various things happen around that? So this one is exploit code and and you look, and about you know a little under forty percent of ex of the times exploit code is published before the CVE is published. Um, another eighteen percent is almost same day, like within a day of publication. And those those there is some overlap there, um, but you get a sense that again there these things are often timed. So if you put those together, you're getting up around fifty percent of the time. By the time you get to when a CV is published or a day or so after, about half of them have exploit code available. And you guys looked at CVE publish day because that's effectively when the world knows that an exploit exists, here are the details, um, both good and bad, right? The, yeah. the attackers yeah. and the defenders. At least ideally, yes. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, and so you start looking at uh, a few of these to kind of build out, it looks like, some context for the kind of final chart. So figure 10, we look at patch date relative to CVE publish date. And so um, actually some hope here. So roughly 60% of patches are actually available before the CVEs ever published. Um, another 37.3% are available within a day or so of the being published. So we're talking about what, 97%-ish? Yeah, yeah. You do, there's not very many that, that trickle out after the CVE is published, which is, again, it's by design. That's the way we want it to work, right? By the time the world knows about this thing, you can fix it. Was that surprising to you, Ed, that a lot of patches are available um, right around not, the time the CV is published? No? Not at all. Um, I would have told it. I mean, given the coordination effort that we've seen over the last several years, I feel like every time there's very few where you look at a CV in the National Vulnerability Database and there isn't a fix available somewhere there. Right? That makes sense. Well, and that's a good thing. And we can, I think we can give another uh, shout out to Microsoft because they're probably responsible for like half of those if we look at the distribution. Shout out for being responsible for half of those CVEs. (laughs) And patches as well. Um, And then we jump into what, figure 11. So the first detection relative to the patch availability. So this is a little bit different, but um, this is where we see the, the numbers start to go a little little backwards from what we would expect, right? So, or at least what I was thinking. So from first detection, so first time it was scanned in an environment, correct? Yep. Right, okay. Relative to when the patch was available, only 4.1% of vulns are actually scanned or identified um, before a patch is available. And I, I think there's probably some nuance there, like, do they have signatures to scan for it? Do exactly. Yeah. I, I'm actually surprised that it's as high as 4%, uh, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. One of, one of the things we didn't do is check out, okay, what is the exact list of CVEs for all of those cases? But, you know, we, we, we could. And, uh, you know, sometimes it is a matter of when signatures are available. Uh, you know, and we've all seen vulnerabilities where it, it, it drops and a patch can't be created immediately. It takes some time and they say, hey, if this is in your environment, do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, that's another thing that's going on here. Yeah. Well, and it, I, I think, you know, now looking at this, it, it speaks to the coordination, right? Because before it's 4.1%, uh, but within that one to two day period of when the patch is dropped, 73%. Yeah. Right. So it goes from like, doesn't exist to everyone knows here we're scanning it and we have a patch available like almost immediately interesting there's a big common pattern here i think between the last several figures which is that straight line right around day zero of of you know patch becoming available a lot of different things are happening within that very small window of time and i would really encourage people um, even more than any of the previous reports follow along on this one because I, I think the charts do a really good job of kind of illustrating from like that kind of relative day zero, whatever you're looking at at that time, and showing that context. Um, and so now we're looking at exploit code being available relative to the patch date. And 24% of the time, exploit code is available before patch date. Now, is that surprising? I don't know if that surprises me. I mean, we'll we'll talk about this one more in just a bit here. We keep foreshadowing it. But <laughs> um, again, you have this idealistic way that vulnerability lifecycle should proceed. And this is one of those that you would rather not see, right? You don't want 
exploit code available um, before you can fix it, which is usually represented by the patch. But that is not uncommon. And and I would, so I would say at first, when I first saw this chart and thinking through, I thought, oh, that is surprising. That seems like a large amount. But then let's remember that we've whittled this data set down to vulnerabilities that are actually being exploited in the wild, which is, a, as we know, is a very small number of vulnerabilities. And then we're looking at exploit code associated with that. So, you know, the percentage of actual vulnerabilities across all CVEs in 2019 that had exploit code before the patch are much, much smaller. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And like, it's always good to point out, and I think we'll we'll reinforce this later, correlation does not necessarily mean causation. And the causation could go the other way. Like, Ed, you're kind of talking about for this particular one, that's a possibility if they are causal effects, right? So um, I will jam through 13 and 14 real quick, um, these figures, so we can get to kind of the meat of this discussion. But... Um, so figure 13, we look at the first exploitation relative to the patch being available. So not exploit code, but observed exploitation evidence in the wild. Um, so before the patch is available, 10.8%, which seems kind of high. But um, overall, like when we compare this to the other curves, um, overall, like even a month after, it's only 44.2%, I think, of their uh, overall a attacked <laughs> uh number of orgs or whatnot, right? The entire gamut. So that's actually relatively small compared to like, say, patch rates where they hit, you know, 93% a month afterwards. And then figure 14, they look at the first exploitation relative to the exploit code being um, uh, available, right? And so 21.1% is before. So someone's working on that before everyone else knew about it. It only jumps another 3.2% right around the same time. And a month afterwards, again, just that 10% bump to 55.8% a month afterwards. So some of these context setting uh, pieces out of the way, and let's get into the fun stuff. So measuring momentum. So Wade, to do this, we're trying to look at the momentum between attackers and defenders. And can you go over kind of the three timelines that you guys needed to establish to start to analyze this? Yeah, so uh, this, you know, I've always had this question in the back of my mind of, of kind of who, who has the advantage. Um, and we actually purposely chose momentum instead of advantage um, because it's hard. I mean, advantage is, is much larger picture than what we're measuring here. But we want to know, you know, who moves first, who is growing whatever it is that they're doing at a rate and how does that uh, relate to you know the other the other groups? So the things we we measure here are you know how quickly vulnerability scanners are detecting vulnerable assets. So you can view this as sort of the find rate. You know how quickly your organization's getting after it in terms of of finding where that vulnerability exists in their environment. And it's a it's a period of time. It actually goes pretty quick. Like right after the patch is available, they eighty percent of the time uh, you know it's within a a, a, a month or uh, just a few, yeah, about a month, 80% of them are already found. So it happens pretty quick. Um, second thing we measure 
is the remediation. So finding is one thing, fixing is another. And so the next curve that we look at is how quickly they remediate those vulnerabilities once they're found. And we've done this in, in prior P2Ps. So if you're familiar with the survival analysis, and I don't know, we've probably done 50 different charts of a curve. So this this should not be a shocker. Um, but, you know, it takes about five months to remediate 80% of vulnerabilities across the environment, five months after the patch is available, I should say. Um, and then the third thing that we measure is the uh, attacker, the exploitation timeline. And this is the new one here, and so it probably deserves a little bit of exploitation. But think about this as trying to answer how quickly do uh, does exploitation spread across whatever proportion of organizations that detected it, right? So, um, and we, we already talked about prevalence, but, you know, at some point there's the first organization that ever registered an exploit attempt against that vulnerability. That's day one. And then there's the last organization that ever detected that vulnerability. And we're looking at how time progresses between those points. And so, you know, we find it typically takes takes six months for attackers to reach 80% of their target population. 80% of the organizations have detected it that will detect exploitation in the wild after six and to months. be clear, that's not 80% of organizations who have that vulnerability in their environment. It's 80% of the organizations who we can identify had some form of exploit behavior, <laughs> some kind of trigger. Yeah, they detected. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Does not mean compromise. No incidents here. Uh, and in many cases, this is... Uh, opportunistic activity attackers or, 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 you know, even red teams scanning for vulnerabilities and some IPS sensor registered, oop, this exploit was attempted against this vulnerability. Got it. And, and in uh, some ways you can look at that as another form of defense, right? If I have an IPS signature to defend against. Yeah. Yep. But it's also an opportunity, right? Because it's a trigger, something happened, right? Someone's yep. probing for whether good, bad, or indifferent someone's probing and finding that. Okay. So you start to layer these things on top of each other. Yeah. And so I think it's probably not surprising that the uh, discovery of vulnerabilities by vulnerability scanners, pretty quick remediation um, by and large is next. And then, then exploitation of the wild, but, but there is some intermingling of those last two. And that's, that is the most fascinating part of this study for me. I don't know if we can skip ahead to, uh, I'm looking at figure 20 right now. Is that, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is trying to going back to that question of momentum, who has the momentum. So in general, what we see is this pattern. Um, before the patch is available, attackers have the momentum. Um, they the the red exploitation line lifts quicker than the blue defender line or the remediation curve in this, indicating that exploitation activity is happening before the patch is available and before defenders start remediating systems, right? Not a whole yep. lot. It's still about 10% only at that point in time, but attackers are exploitation gains the momentum to begin with. Yeah, it makes sense that a lot of not a lot of remediation is going on when there isn't a patch available. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that is an important uh, point to make is that defenders are clearly 
uh, handicapped until that patch is available, right? The longer it is until that patch is available, the more and more momentum uh, attackers will gain over defenders. Yeah, there's not much they can necessarily do about it before a patch is available. And as we actually found out earlier, a lot of them can't even identify that they have it necessarily um, for a vast majority until uh, patches are available because they tend to coincide with uh, CVE published dates and the data is first detected within an enterprise. So, yep. Now, I I have to say this is the thing that probably surprised me the most in this entire report is that from a point, we try not to make too big of a deal about exact dates in this because this is an overall timeline for both remediation and exploitation here. But, you know, from what we see in general, typically about two, one to two weeks after uh, the patch is available, defenders actually gain the momentum. Like, I did not expect that. I didn't expect it that quick and I didn't expect them. They maintain that momentum through six or seven months, which I think is shocking that they actually are remediating systems at a faster rate than attackers are exploiting new organizations or attempting to exploit new organizations uh, during that window of time. And again, it's encouraging, it's surprising, but you know, it, it really shows that, oh, you see those defenders engage and they go to work trying to remediate those systems. So in theory, defenders, they while they get a slower start, it's relatively rare that they will actually be behind the bell curve overall, that they'll get popped right before they have a chance to remediate. And we're finding, which is pretty cool, that companies in general, once a patch is available, they are, they are patching stuff. They're getting work done, and they're doing it at a really fast, uh, I guess, velocity, right? The survival quarter? At least for that first 80%. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they get 80% of the job done. And, and that is where uh, things change again. At, after about six or seven months, the attackers catch up and overtake defenders on, on momentum. And, you know, I think that 80% mark probably represents you've found all the obvious um, assets in the environment. You fix the things that you can. And then there's just the stuff that's either legacy equipment or things that, oh, don't touch that because it's too critical or whatever. We've all experienced this, right? There's the, the plateau of remediation and you've seen it in lots of different survival curves that we've done in this research series. But that is what gives attackers back the uh, control of momentum and, you know, whatever we can do to avoid that uh, as defenders is is a good thing. Yeah, and this seems to speak to this long tail of exploitation that we've also seen in previous reports as well. Sorry, Ed, I kind of cut yeah, you no, off. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. A long tail of exploitation and, and then a kind of a long tail of not remediating, right? That survival curve that never ends. We always seen in all the previous reports, it feels like you never quite get to 100%. There's always kind of that long tail out there. Yeah. And it seems like there's kind of a steady, almost a steady state of exploitation that just kind of continues along that path. Well, and this kind of speaks to the case for prioritization, right? If if you know that these are the 473 that people are going after within 2019 vulns, right? Go patch all 100% of 473. Like, I don't care what you have to do. 
get these ones done and then you you can worry a little bit less about some of the other stuff and get yeah, that stuff done. But as maybe. we've seen in six volumes of this stuff, easier said than done. Yes, <laughs> I, I love making it sound really easy because yeah, just, I don't actually it. have to patch and or manage any of these programs. But, you know, to bring out a, a, a one of our metrics, you know, this is a coverage problem, right? This, this goes back to maximizing coverage insofar as you can because then you're remediating uh, a high number of these these vulnerabilities with 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 known exploits yep that's right well and then we jump into the the interesting implications for some of this stuff so do early exploits shift the momentum of attack and defense do they wait uh they do indeed <laughs> uh, and and this is where uh this report gets gets very interesting because um when for, for the vulnerabilities where exploit code was made public before the patch was available, the that exploitation in the wild line shifts 47 days earlier on average across the duration of that line. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but on average, things occur, exploitation occurs 47 days earlier. Um and, and that's because there's a relationship between exploit code and exploitation in the wild, right? If you have early exploit code, um, you have earlier exploitation, not always the case. We've already talked about how these things are all different sequenced, but in general, um, that happens. And, and when that happens, that changes the attacker defender divide substantially, right? You go from a period where you've got a, a clear uh, area where defenders have the momentum to that shift left in the exploitation timeline really erodes that defender um, uh, momentum down to not much. So ultimately what we see is when exploit code is made public before a patch is available, we see, just just so everyone knows, I think we're looking at kind of a combination of figure 21 and figure 22 here, which figure 22 is the, the big one for this report. If you look at one figure and understand it, go look at this one if you're listening in. But um, not only does it increase the velocity for exploitation for those specific vulns, it looks like, um, it also, like you said, Wade, shifts everything towards the attacker's advantage by, you know, a month and a half, almost yeah. two months. Figure 21 actually shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, as, as Wade's talked about before, right? The relationship between exploit code and exploitations in the wild is, is uh, we've covered that before. Um, obviously, if, if exploit code is available earlier, the chances of exploitation in the wild uh, happening earlier are, not, are, are high, right? Figure 22, there is definitely some surprises here for me. Um, not so much on the left, but on, on the right. And probably more so, the, one of the biggest surprises to me is actually the remediation rates on the right. So to say, if the exploitation or the exploit code gets published earlier, we actually not only see momentum changing uh, where the uh, attackers have have more momentum for a longer period of time than defenders but we actually kind of see like that remediation curve suffer a bit as well which was interesting yeah yeah and some of that might might be the data here because again we start off with 473 volumes the majority of which 
exploitation is not before the patch. So we're looking at a minority of those in that in that right figure 22. Um, but still, you know, may, maybe there are reasons. Um, this is something where we want to expand our data set and study this in a lot more detail in the future. Um, but, you know, what I don't take this as, um, and, you know, I want to be careful when I say this because I know this is a touchy subject. We start to to dance around explosive issues in our in our domain. But what like the moral and ethics of vulnerability and exploit code disclosure? Yeah, there 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 are a lot of people that say, "Hey, drop exploit code as fast as you can," because that lets defenders start doing defender things earlier. Right? It ultimately helps defenders, and I see no evidence of that in this data that we've been able to study. Now, there's also the argument that dropping that exploit code early helps defenders in the sense that they can begin detecting exploitation quicker. And I think that's that's an open door here. Like this may be what we're seeing. It's not that attackers are necessarily starting their activity earlier. Defenders are just able to begin detecting it in the wild earlier because uh, IPS detection signatures or AV detection uh, signatures used that exploit code, um, you know, to to do that quicker. And I, I hate to say it, but let's, Ed mentioned it already. We we have a lot of open questions at the end of this report, <laughs> and that's that's one of them, right? That's an imp- really important question uh, that we need to answer, and we'll try to do that later. But I, I uh, uh, lots of things could be happening here. Opens up a ton of questions, primarily around causation, right? We see the data and we can see what it's showing us thus far. Uh, to your point, it could be a smaller sample size, right? So I'm sure like we did with uh, what P2P V1, right? We, when we're trying to wrap our arms around how do we analyze and measure these things, we'll do a smaller set, make sure that vets out and then expand that scope. So I'm sure, you know, and I'm giving you guys extra work for the next one. But uh, well, <laughs> fortunately this is a, a long solved debate in our industry and we won't have any any questions <laughs> or anything arise. Yeah, absolutely. No one will ever challenge these results. But I mean from what we can tell and even going back to the other um, reports, right? Like patches being available seems to be one factor that really leads to success overall, right? From what we can see. From an exploitation standpoint, and that's reinforced here as well, um, almost inversely, at least from yeah, from and the tons data of coordination going around on that that patch availability is as we saw throughout many of those charts, right? Which is definitely a good thing for defenders. Absolutely, and just to ground things out real quick, so on when a patch is available before exploit code is readily available, right? Um, uh, attackers get a very small advantage early on, um, and then the remediation rate for companies uh, kind of crosses over, what, 5% mark, right? So within like a week after the patch is available, um, when we're looking at detection of exploits in the wild, when exploit code is available before the patch, um, either they're detecting this or what whatever causation we could find, but... Um, when that happens, that crossover doesn't happen until month one and attackers have hit, what, 30% of their target population and defenders um, uh, have only patched 30% of those vulnerable systems, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of, if you look at the months um, on the on those figures, you kind of get the, this is 
eyeballing it, uh, round numbers, but that's about a 15 month period, 12 months after the patch, three months before. And in that first scenario, um, you know, attackers had the upper hand or had the momentum for nine months um, compared to six months for defenders. And when you flip it and you release the exploit code before the patch, uh, attackers now sort of own 12 months out of those 15 months, which is, you know, a big difference, right? And and defenders only have three. So now you've really flipped the tables. Your probability on the defender side is not not in your favor for a majority of the time. Right. Fun. Well, I know, you know, that's kind of the big takeaway here. And it, it I mean, again, we can't draw causation per se. Um, I think the data shows that some way, shape or form, you know, it really puts an impetus for a patch to be a bit available <laughs> before ideally people know how to take advantage of a vulnerability, um, which I think just makes sense logically. We'll try to vet out whether or not that actually maps out from a, a sci- more scientific standpoint later on, I'm sure. But at least as far as we, the data is showing us right now, you know, what would be your takeaway, Ed, if your advice <laughs> to the industry <laughs> based off of this? Please make patch available as soon as possible. Uh, It's it's probably the the, the number one learning here, obviously. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's the the three uh, different questions that we kind of lay out uh, at the end of of volume six, I think, are are something that we need to dive into. Um, and, and, And keep in mind that this is not a debate about vulnerability disclosure, per se, right? Because we're not talking about disclosing the vulnerability. We're talking about ex- exploit code actually being available prior to a patch, which which is very different. Um, so, and, and there are great uses for that exploit code. We already discussed some of them. Signatures for IPS could be how signatures for even uh, vulnerability scanners it uh, develops sometimes, although we see a great coordination there uh, around patch and, and CVE publish and, and all that earlier on. Um, I think we got a lot of things to dive into here, but I, I 100% agree that there's a lot of data sh- here to show you that it, it becomes much more difficult on average for the defender if that exploit code is available for a long time before it patches. Yeah. Wade, any any thoughts on this? I I would love this to start a, a positive friendly and helpful conversation um you know we've we've struggled with disclosure i want it to be violent and years. dogmatic personally <laughs> i think that would be fun to watch on twitter anyway sorry continue uh you know we've we've talked about disclosure for a number of years and you know again my takeaway here is that's predominantly working you know the the for the most part Patches are available when the CVE publishes and all of that kind of stuff happens as you would want to see in coordinated disclosure. Um, But the same kind of discussions that we had leading up to that, where I think we were in a decent place overall right now, you know, there's some maybe some things we need to talk about what happens after uh, or or these other, you know, more in the exploitation phase. Like, uh, is there a, quote, responsible disclosure uh, for exploit code? Right. Is is that a thing? Um, do we need to make it a thing? Recognizing 
Most of the disclosure debate is about vendors and when they release patches, you know, getting vendors to own that there's a vulnerability, push them toward patching. And and again, that we're we're in a much better place now than we were a long time ago. But I think we need to think about remediation a little bit more now. Like, okay, the patch is available. That doesn't seem to be the biggest problem to me. The biggest problem to me seems to be cutting that remediation cycle down as, as, as much as we can to where systems get fixed. Um, and that's not the vendors doing that, although the vendors can help uh, defenders uh, accomplish that. But that's, that's sort of after, after the patch, after the CVE is published, what, what do we need to talk about and do in that window of time? You got to look at the entire entirety of it, right? It's it's not just oh, patch is published now. We don't have to worry about anything because, as you mentioned, Wade, there's this huge time difference, and getting to eighty percent or ninety percent remediation can be months for these organizations. And someone's dog really agrees with Wade. Um, yeah, that would be mine. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, to me, I think you know, as from my corporate comms kind of security hat, right? I think I can unequivocally say, hey, patches should be available. Otherwise, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> right? You discover a bone. You know, it, uh, to me, overall, I think it kind of shifts a little bit of the impetus if, you know, you're a bone researcher, you're finding um, new exploits, new vulnerabilities, uh, you're doing bug bounty programs, right? Maybe you have to demonstrate that you can exploit this vulnerability to get paid. It, it shifts the responsibility a little more squarely on those people who are discovering the exploit code, whether they're good or bad, right? For whatever reason, to try to work with vendors to get patches available, right? So maybe we're talking about, hey, you know, discovery's nice, writing exploits is nice. Um, maybe shift a little bit of your talents and help them, you know, with some of the remediation, some of the patching, getting that out to the world. Um, because there's clearly, at least from what we can see from the data standpoint, a reason to do so. People are more successful when the patch is available first, widely. So that's that's my takeaway, at least, um, from this one. But I'm biased as hell, and I know it, so I'll, I'll call that out there. <laughs> and um, Dan Mellinger's Twitter handle is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, God, I'm going to lose all 200 of my followers. It'll be terrible. Um <laughs> uh, Ed, Wade, any – I know we're rounding out the top of the hour. Any other uh, – any other things you'd like to close with before we hop off here? No, I, uh, we've got a p- bunch of uh, uh, things we'd like to look at in the future. But if this sparks any ideas or, you know, we have kind of an open call at the end of this one to say, hey, we have these three hypotheses of what could be going on here. We need this data uh, in order to answer this. Who wants to play? Uh, and I'll just kind of throw that out there to any listeners that have data that could help us answer these questions. Let us know. I always love ending a podcast with an open call for data. Always. So if agree, disagree, you have some ideas to help us improve these reports, uh, you're going to want to DM Ed Bellis. I think that's uh, Ed Bellis <laughs> yeah, on Twitter. Uh, sure. No, but seriously, do so. Uh, hit us up. Um, you can uh, find all of us on Twitter. You can hit us up on the Kenneth Security page. Scientia, you know, Jay Jacobs, I'm sure he loves getting DM'd all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, hit up any one of us, and um, we're always looking for, uh, you know, new interpretations, new data, all that good stuff. And I think uh, this report more than most uh, should have some cool input from the community. So, uh, Ed, Wade, thanks, guys. I uh, appreciate you hopping on today. And uh, everyone, take it easy this Wednesday. Bye now.